Well, everyone, whether they know it or admit it or not, everyone is religious to a large degree. Everyone is religious. And, and though our passage this morning that I'll be preaching from is in Matthew chapter 13, verses uh, 53 through 58, I want to I call your attention to Matthew chapter 7, verse 21 through 23. My, my sermon will be talking about the, the rebuke that others have of Christ, but I want to I set that up with hearing Christ's own warning about how he'll later be treated. He says in Matthew chapter 7, Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. On that day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and cast out demons in your name and do many mighty works in your name? And I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. So here Jesus is talking about that, that everyone is religion, is religious in their own actions. But the idea of being religious very much turns to a, a frightening level when whom we worship is anyone other than Christ exclusively. Religion can just or religion can do just enough in many ways to satisfy the condemnation on our own souls. And there are occurrences when, when men reject Christ because he is too much like their own works. They see him in opposition to them and they say he doesn't seem like that big of a deal. But there will be a time when Christ says that he will reject those people finally because their hearts and desires are without faith in him fully, in his personhood and in his divinity. During my junior year of college, I was sitting in my fraternity house room uh, listening to one of my friends. Uh, he came into the room. He asked if he could speak to another guy. Of course, it's like we all live in the same house. You can do whatever you want. But he was there and he was, I was just typing away at my computer kind of in this cubby. Our rooms were tiny and we, we, had, a, we had a four stack of beds. So it was like kind of in a little prison cell. But I was typing away at my computer. My friend was behind me. Another friend started talking to him and you're kind of typing away. And all of a sudden you go, oh, this is a very intense conversation. Because at that time, just without any warning, my other friend was very clearly and very slowly explaining the gospel of Jesus to one of my roommates. Uh, the non-believing friend was completely unable to follow the conversation. He was, he was asking questions. He was slow to speak. He was turning and flipping through various parts of the Bible. He was just talking to him and wanting to share the gospel with him. But my, my friend had, had no concept of what sin was. Had no concept of what consequences for sin would be, or even how, how Jesus would fit into um, forgiving those sins and what Jesus would have to do. It was, it was almost like my friend was talking to a wall because he would ask a question. My, my buddy behind me being talked to was, a, was very smart. It's not like he didn't understand what was going on, but he just didn't have what my friend was asking. My believing friend was patient and persistent, and he was calmly explaining that Jesus died for our sins and that through faith in him alone, we can attain salvation from the judgment that we all deserve. And without hesitation, he, he asked, do you, know, do you think you know who Jesus is? And my friend said, yeah, I, I love Jesus. And you're going, whoa, almost. He said, I believed in him when I was six. I'm a Christian. Wait, are you saying that I'm not a Christian? And of course, I'm just trying to type away at this point, but also going... I want to leave and crawl in a hole right now. 
He was a Christian in awareness only. He was, a, he was a Christian in awareness only. He knew Jesus. He said he liked Jesus. He even said that he knew that Jesus was the answer. But to him, it became apparent that Jesus was no Lord to him. And like that circumstance, we see in this passage the main point that Jesus, who will be rejected by his own friends and family after preaching to them, we see the main point there that, that even those who should know best may reject the king and his kingdom. Jesus has been building a case, uh, at least Matthew has been portraying Jesus build a case over and over again, that he is hiding the kingdom from some and exposing the kingdom to so many. And he says, through all of that, you will see just what it looks like to reject my grace and my mercy into where he finally then goes to his own family and his own friends. And he's preaching to them the same gospel that he would have preached on the mountainside. And they don't receive him. They reject him altogether. So today, I want you to see that Jesus' teaching and his works will cause unbelief and rejection. Jesus' preaching, teaching, Jesus' own works will cause unbelief and rejection. His teaching and works cause unbelief and rejection. Now, part of this, it'll be helpful for you to understand that, that Matthew is switching the mode and how he is talking about Christ to us. So for the previous chapter, the beginning of the chapter of 13, he was speaking to us in parables. And we all know you read a parable different than you read a narrative. It's kind of like reading a newspaper versus watching a movie. You're using different you know, muscles in your brain to, to watch those or to understand those. So Jesus is now, is now being portrayed in narrative form. And so it will help you to understand, I recognize that on your bulletin, there is no outline for you to follow with, and I apologize, but I will tell you the outline if I remember to, bit by bit. So point number one, as far as I can remember, is that it will help you to understand that Jesus' teaching and works cause unbelief and rejection by revealing this ultimate problem that these people have. So point number one, this is revealing the setting to us, but it is exposing the problem. The immediate setting of the short story involves just three groups. There's Jesus, there's people in the synagogue, and the disciples who regularly follow Jesus around. And now Jesus, whenever he would preach, he would normally go to synagogues and take his position and preach. It was, it was like a traveling itinerant preacher. He was allowed to do so because his rank in their system. So he would go to a synagogue and preach. And he normally went to synagogues in whatever city he went to. But this particular case, if you're following along in the, in the Bible, this particular case, he's going to somewhere specific that, that ought to uh, alarm us a little bit. It was a bit of a homecoming for him. It'd be like Jesus going to his, own, his home church and start preaching. Jesus was now, in this scene, teaching in his home synagogue, his home court. He was there in Nazareth with his people, you could say. And we know this because of the parallel account of the other Gospels, Mark and Luke, where, where this same story is, is emphasized in various ways through Matthew, Mark, and Luke. So we can learn various things about this when we kind of combine them and see them together. Now, this return to Nazareth occurred after Jesus was in another region where he had healed a demon-possessed man. So if you think historically, he comes to Nazareth just after, in other uh, gospel accounts, just after healing a demon-possessed man, then recrossed the sea to Capernaum. Now, from there, he traveled to Nazareth, uh, where he'd grown up, only to discover that the people refused to believe that he was the Christ. They saw him as Jesus of Nazareth, but when it came to him being the Christ, the Lord, they're like, I don't know. And that kingdom that they were all hoping for 
was within him. Now, it's helpful to see this story unfold. This is still within the problem here, revealed by the setting. In many ways, narratives unfold themselves in scenes. Those of you who are into the arts, you know, typically a TV show has three scenes or three parts to it, or a play has a couple of scenes, or a movie has different plot developments. I want you to think about this theme and, and allow it to, or the scene, and allow it to kind of unfold the tension here. Within every story, there are different scenes allowing us to picture the sequence of events. Look at verse 53 through 54. And when Jesus had finished these parables, he went away from there, and coming to his hometown, he taught them in their synagogue so that they were astonished. And you think, oh, pretty good. They were astonished. And he said, where, or, or, and they said, where did this man get this wisdom and these mighty works? So already there's conflict here. They're watching him preach and they're going, where did this guy come from? And from the site of the Galilean shore, probably Capernaum, Jesus decided to pay a visit to his hometown of Nazareth, a village of perhaps at that time about 1,500 people. Uh, Jesus entered the synagogue and began to teach apparently also performing miracles, demonstrating his divinity and his power over everyone around him. As in other settings, his hearers were astonished or amazed, or what it literally means is to be struck. You know, it's not like you would be watching a basketball game and your team wins at the end and you just erupt and cheer, but someone just did something so amazing that you go, whoa, look at that. But theirs was an amazement of disbelief rather than a realization that would shock them into believing. They had no explanation for Jesus' wisdom or miraculous powers, but whatever the explanation, they would not consider the truth that was right in front of them. Here, Jesus arrives and teaches while performing these miracles. And you'll notice, if you keep studying the Bible, that he always does miraculous things while first teaching specifically about the kingdom of God. So he will, he will say in word, the kingdom of God is like this, or repent and believe for the kingdom of God is at hand. And then he will show his divine power by doing a miracle or healing someone. So naturally, amazed that the onlookers ask him how he got such power. Now look at this next, the next kind of scene. And rather oddly, it says in verse 55, is not this the carpenter's son? Is not his mother called Mary? Are, are not his brothers James and Joseph and Simon and Judas? And are not all his sisters with us? Where did this man get all these things? Clearly, their tone here is accusational. All right, they're not just, they're not just saying, oh, look, that's Mary's son. Oh, look, that's so-and-so's friend. They're going, who, come on, who is that guy? clearly accusational. It almost makes you uncomfortable to see. This, is, this would be one of those TV shows where the goal is to make you cringe on the inside. Who in the world are you? They're asking. And so I think you'll agree that this is truly the climax of the story here. This, this will dictate how we're to understand the rest of who Jesus is. This is where the tension is at its max, almost like that awkward moment when everyone looks at each other just before the, the, the gunfight in the movie. Because here we have the onlookers' amazement, but now they're asking questions of the legitimacy of Jesus because he's a mere carpenter's son. He's one of them. Who's he to preach in this synagogue? Who's he to say these incredible things? He's one of us. They know this guy. The point here is that Jesus comes from a village family. And this is proved by the fact that everyone within 
uh, within his immediate family are all well known to the speakers and perhaps all living in the area of Nazareth. There's, there's no denying that Jesus did not belong with the higher-ups. He never desired to be. But he's, to these people and on his own, he's a villager, just like everyone else. Uh, though he may do incredible things, they don't believe him when he says that he is inaugurating the kingdom of God. He's ushering in the heavens to them. And they just don't believe him. He had no business doing these things that he was doing in their own mind. They're like, get out of here. And so accusing a normal person of doing irregular things, they ask, who is this guy pretending to be all big and bad? Look at verse 57. Where then did this man get all these things? Because of the puzzle Jesus represented in these people's minds, they would not believe him. However, they could not honestly dismiss him. They knew that he was doing something. They just didn't want to follow him. And in their confusion, they became angry, looking for someone to blame for their uncomfortable state. They took offense at him. They were saying, where did he get all these things? Maybe he's bewitched by someone else. And this is where it shows that familiarity to Christ can very often breed contempt. Familiarity with Christ can breed contempt. It's here that they took offense at him. We see this problem unfolding more so. That Jesus said to them, a prophet is not without honor except in his hometown and in his own household. They took offense at him and he fully recognizes it and speaks to the irony of the situation here in what may have been a a proverbial saying around that time. Jesus clearly uses it on himself. This is a drastic claim because there's no prophets. There's been no prophets for centuries beside John the Baptist. And John the Baptist had been telling people to follow this particular person as the true and better prophet. He's finally arrived. And here he's speaking in the synagogue and they're rejecting him. And he's saying almost as if to say, we've seen this coming for a long time. A prophet is not welcome, even in his own home. home." Like Jesus' own family, others find it difficult to think that one of their own could possibly be different. Now think of it, many of you with kids, there's always that one that you wonder, are they going to be the apple that falls very far from the tree? But in some ways, they were looking at Jesus and going, no, the apple is near the tree, and in no way, in no way is this guy the Messiah, the Son of God, the one whom we've been waiting for. And so we see finally in verse 58 that their unbelief caused on them now a lack of miracles. Jesus performing these miracles was associated with the faith of these people. In this context, however, it was Jesus' lack of miracles that was associated with these people's lack of faith. Uh, This has been one of the most sorrowful statements in the Bible where if you would imagine Jesus leaving his hometown with many people who he had loved, unable to find the faith that he found in Gentile people. His, His own family and close friends were fulfilling Matthew 13 verses 14 through 15, where they were hearing but not understanding, or even his, his encouragement to the disciples to go out and spread the gospel news, and even to the point where him saying, your family will reject you. And in another way, Jesus is sending them out on that mission, but then saying, I will go first, and in this case, he will also go first in having his own family reject him. So we see here that there is a huge problem that has a result, that the miracles are done away with in their midst. They'll no longer get preaching from him. They'll no longer get showcases of power from him. 
And here we have a second point, if you will, the position of Christ in the midst of the problem. We, we, we can see the problem in a narrative form, but I want you to think about Christ being very present within this problem. Christ being very present within this problem, not ignoring it, not just moving on. Whereas you would recognize just before this, Jesus was already teaching in the midst of opposition when describing the kingdom of God through parables. That's one thing that was notable about Jesus' own preaching. He always went into the midst of an issue. He always went into people, uh, went toward people who were rejecting him. You think about the hidden treasure where it would take someone everything to gain it. Or the costly pearl, this parable, where the person would, be, would sell everything in order to buy it. Or you think of the dragnet parable, where, where Jesus says that at the end of days, all will be brought in. And then finally, the scribe of the kingdom that he had just uh, told his people about, the scribe of the kingdom where Christians are known to show and tell. And here, at first opportunity, after hearing of what Christ was saying and after seeing of what Christ was doing, these people were not just showing and telling. They were actually rejecting and belittling who he was. And there he stood. Just after the story, you'll find that Herod is going to and does kill John the Baptist. So you know the context here of what Jesus is doing, talking about the rejection of the kingdom that will be had by those around Christ. And then afterwards, even the last great prophet, John the Baptist, will be beheaded because of his preaching of the gospel. But think about it within the context of Matthew as a whole. Why is Matthew now describing this event now? What is he, what is he aiming to demonstrate to you about who Christ is? We see that Jesus speaks with authority in Matthew chapter 5 through 9. Jesus speaks of his own uh, heavenly agenda in Matthew chapter 10, verse 13. And it's within that he would then commission the 12. And then through narratives, his mission was described as having one with authority and offering rest to those who would call on him, demonstrating he is Lord over all and even shows that he will be opposed. But here we have Jesus speaking now to his adversaries now not through parables, but now through a, a direct speaking engagement where the son of Nazareth is rejected as the king. When you think about this as a whole, so there you have just within the gospel of Matthew, we have Matthew demonstrating Jesus in the midst of his glory being rejected. But then when you think of this in its redemptive historical context, the whole Bible, Jesus is speaking to the kingdom that he will rule and reign and is being rejected through narratives and parables. The, the weight of God's people surely is now coming to an end and it looks like they are refusing him. The, the cause and effect here is demonstrative and intense. Jesus finishes his parables and moves on to the Nazareth. Jesus began teaching in the synagogue and they seemed to be alarmed. They asked where this man got his powers, and then they, then they remembered, as if not even listening to his answer, they remembered that he was one of them. Who cares? And then they took offense to him. They rejected him. And what does he do? He stops his miracles. Why, though? And here we have the, the two outcomes. So if you have the problem, and then Jesus, in the midst of the problem, he says that he is going to reject them by not allowing them to partake in his miracles anymore by demonstrating a third point in your outline. A third point, the problem within this passage shows itself to be unbelief. So there is a problem. There is Christ in the midst of the problem. And the outcome is third, 
unbelief. The people who know Jesus will show their unbelief. And what does it, what does it mean to believe in Jesus? We've, we've talked about, I've said this again and again, you know it. What does it mean to actually believe in Christ? If you say, I want to believe in Jesus, or if I want you to believe in Jesus, what am I actually asking of you? What am I actually asking you to do for yourself? What does believing in Christ looks like? And I gave you the acronym CAT with a K. Cat with a K. That's how you know you don't want to go near it. You don't want to go near a cat in general, but especially a cat with a K. Cat with a K. K, know who Christ is. To know who Christ is completely. I'll get an email from a cat person, I realize, but. Know who Christ is in his humanity and in his divinity. K, or A, you ascend to Christ. You are actually going to him for your life and hope. You don't just know who he is, but you actually are ascending to him. And then once you get there, you are trusting in him completely. So K-A-T, know, ascend, trust. And with these people, it is clear that they do not believe because they do not know that Jesus is divine. How do they not believe? How do they show their unbelief? They didn't know who he was completely. They knew him on their own level, they knew him in comparison to their own ability. And, and this sin is actually the sin of elevating yourself above who Christ is. They, they saw Jesus on their own level, right? It'd be like going to someone who was very famous or very good about something. Or it'd be like, you know, Elon Musk. He's a really rich person. And me saying, oh, you know, I have as much money as him. And you're going, you're insane. You do not have as much money as him. They were looking at Jesus and going, he's not that big of a deal. He's just like me. They're calling Jesus the Messiah, the Son of God, holy, perfect, righteous. He's just a carpenter's son. He's just one from Mary. He's he's just here. He'll be gone in a while. Think about how dangerous that is and how easy it is for you and I to do. We, We often are tempted to bring Christ down to our level, wanting him to sympathize with us or wanting him to understand us or be empathetic towards us. We we take him off his pedestal and have him live life as we would have him live. Friends, that is easy to do, and it is so incredibly dangerous. What faith looks like is seeing him for who he is and ascending there with everything that we have in our life, not bringing him down to our own level. Practically, why did they reject him as the Christ? Well, John Owen, the late John Owen, says this. The family knew that God had a great work to do in bringing the Messiah, the Savior of the world. They were were longing for him is what John Owen says. And then he says, they are born and raised to expect him. And when he arrives, they cry out, is this him? Because what did they they expect? They expected outward glory. They expected beauty, liberation, carnal power, political dominion. They wanted a great knight on a white horse to come and kill every Roman person in sight. And who was this one? who was talking about the kingdom of God being like a mustard seed. It's just the carpenter's son to him. John Owen goes on to say, God at length comes to do his work and brought forth a poor man. Think about it. They wanted outward glory, beauty, liberation, carnal power. What did God bring to earth his son who was poor, that had, not, that had nowhere to lay his head, followed by just a few fishermen and simple women, that had Isaiah say, no form or majesty, that we should look at him and no beauty, that we should desire him. Those, that prophecy from Isaiah, it was, it was actually portraying Christ truly. Because it would be Jesus who, not like a political power, it would be Jesus who was persecuted. 
It'd be Jesus who was despised. It'd be Jesus who was crucified from the beginning to the end, which is quite another thing than what they were looking for. Friends, being familiar with Jesus becomes very dangerous when you take him. Think about it. When you take him and you try to force him into a predetermined framework of your own life. You know, I need Jesus to be like this. So I take a little bit and I infuse it in my life. I need Jesus to be like this for me now. I'm going to take a little bit and infuse it in my life. Being familiar with Jesus becomes dangerous when you take him and try to force him into a predetermined framework. They weren't, they weren't seeing him for who he was. So a takeaway from this is, are you so familiar with Jesus that he no longer takes the place in your life of full excellence and adoration and confession and awe? Are you so familiar with him up there that he is no longer in a place of preeminence and glory? If so, consider what you've done. You may think that you have brought him low. That's all, that's all of our attempt, right? I'm, ju- I'm just bringing him down to my level. I just want to understand him for, for how I am. But you haven't brought him low. You've actually, you've actually aimed to elevate yourself, which is exactly what we saw people do in the Tower of Babel. What were they doing? They were trying to place themselves higher up to nobility and glory. You have elevated your view of you and your work and have attempted to make it equal to God. So don't. Make your own view of Jesus, but allow Jesus to reveal himself to you. Know him. Friends, know who he is so that you don't make the mistake of making him into an image of yourself. And you can do this by knowing him through your word. We have thousands of pages of which to know Christ by. So know him through his word. Go to him in prayer and trust him with everything in your life. Now, from an angle, Christian, do you ever consider the the weight that's on you when you speak to a non-Christian? Okay, so if you have this in your own life, where where I might have the uh, propensity to take something off a shelf and place it in my own life or elevate myself, but do you you now feel the weight of talking about Christ to other people? Think about it. When we speak to non-believers about Jesus, we, a lot of the time, are engaging with friends who think they know Jesus already especially in our culture, in our day and age. People have heard about Christ if they've ever seen a Christmas movie, right? They see a nativity scene around town. They might even have people talk about it. I mean, even, even pagan musicians talk about the glory of Jesus in a way to understand the glory of themselves. But in, G- in today's passage, in this context, in Jesus' own words, the residents of Jesus' hometown had known Jesus since he was a young child, and friends of the family, they would have seen him as a toddler. They would have seen him as a young boy. They would have seen him as a teenager, but their view of him was purely human. Oh, we know that guy. They couldn't bring it to themselves to believe his message. They were looking at the person and not hearing his words, that the kingdom of God was at hand, and he is the great shepherd. They couldn't see beyond the man that was in front of them. They, they couldn't see him demonstrate and tell that he was the true and better Adam. That he was the true and better Noah. That he was the true and better Moses. That he was the true and better David. That he was actually the true and better Israel. That they've all been waiting for. They don't even reject him like they're going to throw stones at him. They just say, that's so and so. If you really get to know him. It's not that important. 
So Christian, when we speak of Jesus, we need to be sure not to play into our fear of just hoping that we'll all get along with one another at the end of the conversation. Oftentimes, if, if you present Christ to someone, there will be a rejection there. And you're going to be tempted by Satan to try to morph or mold the person of Jesus to where at the end of the conversation, then they'll continue to be your friends. Or they'll be like, oh, okay, you're not that weird. Or it's not that, that's not crazy. Say things like, well, he's, he's just like one of us. Or, man, he's just, he's just a big help if you'll just listen to him. All of a sudden, you've molded him into something he's not. Be sure to not play into the fear that we all have. Or the fear of looking like a moron that we all really fear, right? We might say the craziest message of all time. You think of the, you think of the different doctrines that, that the, the Orthodox faith has. You know, the view of this or the view of that or what we do. Those aren't even, to the world, the craziest message that we have. Wait till, wait till Easter. When to the world, the craziest message is we believe someone was raised from the dead, conquering sin and death forever. Like, you want to get caught up on, on roles and this, or how churches are arranged, or what we should do next? Wait till that issue comes up, and then they will think you're a moron. And they thought he was too. So friends, speak about Jesus with the whole counsel of the word's portrait. Be, be clear and be persistent in wanting to continually, when you speak to a non-Christian, or when you speak to a Christian, to be clear about what the Bible explicitly says about Jesus. Don't fear theology. Don't fear doctrine. Don't fear things like, you know, creeds or confessions. All those things are trying to clearly explain who Christ is. To where on the tip of our tongue, what is our only hope in life and death? We'd be able to say, Consider the flow of the word here in Matthew, though. It will, it will be normal for people to not believe in Jesus, any, even when they know the basics of his bio. This shouldn't, this shouldn't call us to shame, but rather this should call us to confidence. Remember, remember your own coming to Christ. Uh, what convinced you? What convinced you that, that Christ was who he was? Was it the world? Was it, was it the friendship of other people? Was it attendance that oh, I went a whole lot, so I must be a Christian now. Was it gaining something or was it Christ being revealed to you by his spirit's very word? Friend, that same power that saved you is ought, ought to be the same confidence that we would go to others and say, this is who Jesus is. And so the setting of this passage shows him in a tight-knit company. The context shows him preaching and demonstrating his divinity and desire. There. Their unbelief, though, shows that they don't actually know him for who he really is, but, they know, but know that their language wasn't just merely observational. They thought they would gain from others through their familial insight. So let me say that again. Their language wasn't just observational in how they were talking about Jesus. Everything they said was true. He was this person's brother. He did have sisters. He was the son of Mary. He was operating, or he was formerly a carpenter. But they weren't just observing things, throwing out facts. But they thought they would gain from others through their familial insights. Imagine a famous person walking by you and someone goes, wow, can you believe it? That's the governor of Oklahoma just walking by. And then you tactfully go, maybe after waiting a little bit, you tactfully go, you know, 
he's actually pretty down to earth once you get to know him. And then they go, oh, you know him? And you could be making it up or you could really know him. But what'd you do there? What'd you do in that instance? You know, he, he's, he's pretty down to earth once you hang out. You cause the other person to go, oh, wow, you know him. And you go, yeah, I, I know. I, you know, we're friends. We went to school together or whatever. It's not a big deal. Because you're also in the fearful side of like, can I have his number? Or will you invite him over to your birthday party? And you're like, oh, I don't really know him that well. But you profit from that, right? You socially profit from that name drop or from that situational drop. You, you gain status from that other person because now they think, okay, the governor's cool, but you are cool because you know the governor. And in fact, you know that he's not that cool. So he must be even more cool and you are even cooler than I originally thought because you guys are just homies. Longing for status. Missing the point entirely. Now, in this text, here are people who are downplaying Jesus by bringing up, I know him, and he's really not that special. As if to turn it toward themselves and say, I'm actually just as special as the one you've been listening to. So what do these family members and friends profit from? What did they gain? They thought they would gain societal notice, or they thought they would gain understanding, or they may have even thought they would gain themselves feeling good. If other people are gawking and awing at this person of Jesus, they say he's not that big of a deal, and that way you kind of downplay that they're a loser in their own minds. So what did they profit from this? They thought they would get status, but what they really got, fourthly on your outline, is they got rejection. What did they profit from not seeing Jesus for who he really is? They got rejection. Christian, remember from this passage that when Jesus refused to fit into other people's presuppositions, they always turn on him. From this passage and others, that when Jesus refuses to fit into anyone else's presupposition or boxes, it's always those people who turn on him. And in fact, this prepares us for the next text, where where John's death at the hands of Herod foreshadows Jesus' own death at the hands of Jewish leaders. They could not believe that he was better than them. And deeper than jealousy, if what Christ said was true, then it should have caused fear in their hearts. And rather than working through that fear, rather than adjusting their suppositions of who he was, rather than changing their box, because clearly their box is the issue, their box is the problem, instead of adjusting to he is, or in our case, when you think about faith, trusting in who he is with our whole lives, I don't know if this is going to work out, but I'm going to give you my whole life. They reject him. And what does he do? He says, no more works for you. No more mighty works. He no longer would have miracles before them. And I've been encouraged just by going through Matthew and then even hoping for things in my own life and trying to get a a grasp of what a glimpse of heaven is. Jesus talks about these these miracles and he performs these miracles. What are miracles? I talked about this maybe six months ago, ever since the... uh, Now, 300 years ago, we have a different view of what a miracle is. It's not just supernatural, but what a miracle is, is it's a taste of heaven here on earth. You know, a a repaired marriage, what a glimpse of heaven. A a son who comes home, what a glimpse of heaven. A a dark cloud being lifted from a soul, what what a taste of heaven here, where God's power and his work are on display And Jesus is saying, if you don't want me, you don't get me. 
And this is where we see that Jesus' teaching comes hand in hand with his power. They rejected him, his divinity, and so now they do not get his divinity in works. And I think a diagnostic question for this is, are we, are we more focused on his works or are we more focused on God's truth? And the Christian life must be a balance of, of longing and waiting for God to work in our lives or praying that he will work in someone else's life or in our own, but also recognizing who he is and being faithful and merciful and sovereign and good. Are we so focused on Christ's truth that we miss the glory and blessing of his work? Are we so focused on God's work that you miss the sanctification of his truth? Just before he hid uh, from them his truth uh, by the way of parables, he now will remove his work altogether from them because they rejected him. They now reject him, so he removes the glimpse of heaven in their eyes. The Christian life is and ought to be a balance of God's word and God's deed. We seek God to work and we seek God to sanctify us through his truth, knowing that these two things go hand in hand and neglecting one or the other is actually rejecting Christ's kingdom as a whole. Now, non-Christian, if you're here and you're not a believer today, Jesus has already said in chapter 10, an earlier chapter in this small book of the Bible, that we must be prepared for our own family, uh, for our own family to reject us if we are to call ourselves to follow Jesus. So friends, if you're here and not a Christian, anyone around here who is a Christian desperately wants you to be a believer in Christ Jesus. We desperately want you to see Jesus for who he is, fully divine, fully human, fully able to pay the sacrifice or pay the debt by the way of sacrifice for your sins. And we also need you to know that, that we understand that there might be hang-ups along the way of going, okay, if I follow him, then what does this look like? And, and one of those things, I'm not going to give you the exhaustive list, but one of those things just from the text is that it may cost you your family to follow Jesus. He told us that, he told his disciples that, and he's demonstrating that even he is losing his own family along the way. But friends, the, the message of the gospel is why were these families, why was this family, and why were these friends rejecting Christ? Because they didn't believe him. He has not, he has said to not be surprised when his own family rejects him and his disciples. And so we would tell you, don't be surprised if one of your hang-ups is that you fear the rejection from others. Know that you would be in good company as they reject him. Now in this passage, it's because they saw him as no more than another villager like them. They, they took offense. And this, is direct, this directly is different than how we ought to evangelize towards other people. Jesus, offered, uh, Jesus offended them because he was one of them, uh, but not like them. But when we tell people about the gospel, when we evangelize about Christ to other people, we are saying, don't be like us. Be like Christ. Right? It's Christ who says, be like me. And it's us saying, don't, don't, be like, I'm, don't be my follower, be a follower of him. So we see here that there is a rejection and an unbelief that is poured out from this text. Now to conclude, uh, I, I want us to understand, and here we learn that unbelief is a deadly spiritual poison because of the effects that it has. Not believing in Christ clearly has an effect and it is portrayed like a, like a glimmer of a warning of wrath to come by his 
presence, his heaven's miracles not being there. It's, it's not only that we learn in this passage that some people will refuse to believe in Christ no matter how clear the teaching is, no matter how clear the evidence is before them. It's not only true that in spiritual things, familiarity breeds contempt, but it is also true that unbelief is a deadly spiritual poison that has effect on your soul. Matthew, in this verse, gets to the very root cause of the people's offense at Jesus. Why were they offended? Because their hearts were captured by unbelief. They had hardened hearts. That's the language that Scripture will use all over. Why were they not believing in Christ? Because their hearts were hardened. That's their basic problem. It's not a lack of evidence. It's not a lack of clarity on Jesus' claims or his exposition of Scripture. He's the best preacher, arguably, ever. So it's not just that he didn't have a great punchline and an illustration at the end. They had a hardened heart. It's not that he hadn't done impressive enough miracles. They knew that his miracles were impressive. It's because their hearts were hardened. They believed that he could do miracles, but they were doubting that he was the Messiah. They were doubting that he was the one who could, who could pay the atoning effect of their soul. True faith is that you believe that the Lord Jesus Christ is the Son of God and Savior of sinners, and you receive him and trust in him alone for your salvation as he has offered you in the gospel. That's the kind of faith that's being spoken of here, and it's the kind of unbelief, that kind of lack of that kind of faith, which causes Jesus not to do miracles in their midst. People came to Christ all the time who were trembling and wondering whether he could do amazing things in their life. But the key was that they trusted in him to save them from their sins. And they trusted him to do a great work in their lives. Now, unbelievers here, here and you're not a Christian. If you're sitting here today saying, the reason I don't trust in God is that there's not enough evidence. I don't know if I can believe that. Or the reason I don't trust God is that it doesn't seem like a, a reasonable, reasonable response to live. Or, or there's just something like a hang-up intellectually about it just doesn't click. I need you to know that that you're wrong. The reason you deny Christ, don't blame it on evidence. Don't blame it on intellect. You're standing, you're right standing with the people of Nazareth in your own unbelief who are saying, I will not believe what I can't understand. And it was Augustine who came up with the phrase, you will not understand if you don't believe. It's not something intellectual that keeps anyone from coming to Christ. It's something moral. It's something spiritual. It's not intellectual. It's something moral. It's something spiritual. It's, it's the heart being hardened. You know, the reason why our, our body of believers or our church will sometimes, tragically, have to give notice to the congregation of, hey, we are, we are in fear of this person and we want you to pray for them specifically, for their soul. We want you to go after them if you have a relationship with them. If you have a friendship with them, now is the time to try to call them back to the faith that they once had. Because we recognize that there is a spiritual darkness going on that is either revealing that they are not in the faith or revealing that they are in a dark spot. And it means the only place that we can go when we are struggling for belief is to Christ himself. It's never something intellectual that keeps us from Christ. It's something moral or spiritual. And so we, bring, we aim to bring others back to the water. 
that we are refreshed by from Christ. To beg of God to open our eyes or their eyes that we might be embraced by the love of God in Christ. Now, if you're here and you're a believer, today you need to remember that from this passage, remember again that if you have trusted on the Lord Christ Jesus, you sing this morning not in vain. You pray this morning not in vain. You hear the truth from the word not in vain because by the grace of God, through the worked out mercy of Christ, applied to you by the Spirit of God, your eyes were miraculously opened. Isn't that, isn't that amazing? <laughs> isn't that amazing and kind of him? The reality of, of recognizing this, maybe, maybe our first instinct, Christian, is to see these friends and family, is to go, what more do they need? He's right there, trust in him. And at the same time, if we turned it on ourselves, the, the gratefulness that we have, recognizing that it was that Messiah who drew us in, this doctrine that's called irresistible grace, where our eyes were opened, our ears were dug out, and our hearts were drawn by him so that when we are there, we cry out of his holiness, of his grace, and of his mercy. So I hope you see from this text that judgment from others will happen to the person of Christ. The response of everyone will be called into action, if you just think about it, on the outflow of all these parables. But the grace of Christ revealing himself to everyone he determines is so sweet when we recognize that it is applied to us by faith. Let's pray. Our gracious and heavenly Father, we thank you for the, for the gentleness that you have sought us and for the power that you have bought us. And we pray that you would guide us as we seek to understand who you are. Lord, we pray in thankfulness of what this text exposes to us, of your goodness, of your truth, of your power. And we thank you that by your Spirit's work, by your Father's will, it's applied to us. Oh Lord, may we sing to you and pray to you and hear from you knowing that you have spoken to us with your great mercy. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.